This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Flats, <coughs> you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear. Each and every week, we are very thankful for Scree's support of the podcast. And I know this time of the year, we are getting very close to deer season. There are some seasons out of state, obviously, that are open up. Myself, I'm about to go elk hunting. And there are some whitetail seasons opening in the Midwest and other places. And uh, people are starting to get geared up. And I want to encourage you to check out Scree if you're looking for some new camo hunting gear quality stuff uh you can shop it all online at screegear.com and i i tell you almost every week but it it is such a great deal they bundle a lot of their they they do bundles of a lot of their gear and so basically what that does for you there's an automatic discount applied to that so you're getting a better deal than if you just pick and chose uh piece by piece but also they're putting these bundles together with how they perceive is kind of the best setup for you um, and what you might need and uh, if you do the whitetail starter bundle you'll get a 14-day risk-free trial where you can try the gear for 14 days and if you're not totally satisfied return it no questions asked for a full refund and as with every purchase with scree gear there's a lifetime warranty as well as a customer sizing guarantee which means they'll send you prepaid shipping labels and they'll go back and forth with you through the customer service department to make sure you get the right size if you perhaps order something and it doesn't fit quite the way you wanted but i encourage you to 
Follow them on social media. Check out their YouTube channel for videos and content. Learn more about the gear. And you can shop online at screegear.com. So, we are a couple of weeks out from, from the national holiday of opening day of deer season. And I say that because I know that there are seasons, uh, when we're talking about whitetail deer hunting, there are seasons that are open in the Midwest especially, but... Um, I think October 1st is, can be widely thought of as kind of our national holiday for, for opening day of deer season. And we're not far, but the one thing I wanted to mention, because, um, let me, let me not, let me, let me, let me back up one step joining me on the podcast today. So I'm just going on and on without even Colin is back on the podcast with me today. What's up, Colin? How you doing, Locke? And also, Mr. Benny Gregoire from Buzzard Roost Saddles is joining us on the uh, on the podcast. Benny, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, lot man. How y'all doing? Good. So I got a question. I want to get everybody's opinion on it because I don't even know where I stand on it, and I think it could be an interesting uh, interesting uh, array of of opinions about this. So, as y'all may or may not know, uh, Mississippi has a velvet buck season that opens up next weekend. As we're recording this, that it'll be next weekend, which will be like September the 16th and 17th, I think. It's just like a if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, it's like a 2-day velvet buck season that they just instate re, uh not reinstated but put into um into the regulations this year. And I I mentioned this and I think it's relevant because I know a lot of the members of the Louisiana bowhunter community also hunt in Mississippi with it being a neighboring state and whatnot so i'm curious uh benny what's your opinion about about this new two-day velvet buck hunt i mean what are, what are your thoughts about it, it... man i think i think it's impressive that, that they have the forethought to do that and uh you know guys go to kentucky and everything to to target velvet deer and i just think it creates an opportunity for guys that uh you know, may not have the time to head and go to Kentucky or something and hunt public, public land and everything, but they do have a place in Mississippi, and, and you know, they can go over there and, and get a shot at a velvet buck. Man. I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, I, I wish it wasn't limited to uh, private land only. I wish it was open on public land as well, but uh, other than that, I, I think it's a pretty good good deal, man. Well, I so I didn't know that it was limited to private land. I'm from Mississippi, and I have family property in Mississippi, and I've spent most of my life hunting in Mississippi. But these days, um, I mean, I still hunt there a lot, but I just don't. I mean, I have a lifetime hunting license, and most of my hunting in Mississippi comes after I've hunted at home in October and on the road in the Midwest in November, and so I don't really keep up that much. But, Colin, what did, I know you've gone and, and hunted some of these – velvet seasons both by yourself and you went with me last year in other states what do you what do you think about it yeah it's it's very interesting um i think it's really cool that they are doing it um like like benny said to give some of these guys who may not have the opportunity to go out of state um to target a velvet buck here if they have you know something on on camera but one worry that I have is that it's 
kind of making the season like six months out of the year. And I just personally worry that if you're hammering a specific deer or an area from September through February, <coughs> might not be might not be the best thing. Yeah. Um, personally, just with just with I know how you know these guys down here down south. I mean, we go they go pretty hard. I mean, it's not like a few hunts here or there. A lot of these guys are are all weekend. You know multiple hunts a week and i just that is one concern that i have that i don't know how it would affect you know the population in that on that particular property well i'll say this and benny you've you've put a a little bit of an asterisk in my thoughts about it because i i didn't realize it was limited to private land so that changes maybe changes some of my thought about it being a native mississippian who grew up and learned to hunt and still spends uh, sometime every season hunting in the state it's a little close to home just anything that mississippi does because it is home um well it was home up until 2003 and um my thought about it is this and when i compare it against uh you know you made the the comment benny that you know a lot of guys do the velvet hunts in these other states and and i've taken part in those as well the the one thing that's different to me, however, is those states offer that, and it fits a little bit differently in my mind because Mississippi already has some of the more liberal seasons in terms of bag limits and days of opportunity. So you're, I, I question in my mind is do we need to be like basically what Colin just said do we need to be adding pressure and days of opportunity to an already very long and fairly liberal season? Now, with that being said, saying that it's limited to only private land changes my perspective a little bit because I'm very much on the side of private landowners being having a lot more freedom on their land. That's their land, and it, obviously those aren't their deer, but it is their land, and, you know, uh, it, this is America. And if they're paying taxes and everything else that goes along with being a private landowner um, or whatever with, with, with obtaining private access, then I, I, I am sensitive to that in that I don't think that, that we should be regulated at a high level, generally speaking, when it comes to just legal legislation. But I do understand that the, 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 the Departments of Wildlife and Fishery and Natural Resources and whatever they call it in different states, I know that their, their burden for legality is a little bit different than general civil legality in that they're looking out for a natural resource that's, that, that kind of spans across property lines, so to speak. So... I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about it. Like I, I can say, I can say this. I don't want anybody <coughs> hunting and trying to kill velvet bucks on my private property in Mississippi because I, and only because I think that those deer get all the pressure they can handle from our already, you know, established hunting seasons. So that, you know, that is. Um, interesting in that regard and it's and it's it's always 
interesting to me when they do things from a regulation standpoint that you can do it on private, but you can't do it on public or vice versa. Yeah, I don't know if there is anything that falls in the vice versa category. But if you're looking so at – that brings up a question. Um, on, on private land, my assumption would be that y'all are already uh, managing your herd, and, and I just feel like guys that were uh, hunting private land, you know, they I don't know that they would smash the deer like maybe public landers would, and mm-hmm. I, I don't want to give public landers a bad rap. I'm a public lander myself, uh, and I'm not a horn hunter, but uh, – it's just always been my impression that the uh, private land guys had their had their private land under control from a management standpoint, and they controlled the pressure a lot better than a public land spot would. I so agree. That, that, that's the only question I have there. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It it does seem that that regulation has something in it where there's a self regulation to it. There. They're allowing this freedom knowing that where they're allowing it is, in most cases, going to have a self-regulation already in place. So that's a valid point. Um, You know, the last thing that I was going to say about it is no matter the state, no matter whether we're talking deer or turkeys or waterfowl or whatever, when it comes to hunting regulations and regulating our rights to hunt and all that kind of thing, With the rising cost of goods and record high inflation, wouldn't it be great to save money on your auto insurance? With most companies in Louisiana increasing their rates on auto insurance, American National took a rate decrease. We look out for the best interests of our clients and look forward to earning your trust as well as your business. Call or text Jake Slocum at American National Insurance at 318-255-0096 today for a free assessment. Jake Slocum, American National Insurance, more than just your insurance provider. You're on your way to your stand early in the morning, and you have an accident. You run off the road, total your truck. Your bow, guns, and hunting gear, damaged, may be totaled as well. True or false, your auto coverage covers your bow, guns, and hunting gear that got damaged. False, your homeowner's or rental coverage has content coverage that extends to this event. To find out more, call or text Jake Slocum at American National Insurance at 318-255-255. 0096 today for a free assessment. Jake Slocum, American National Insurance, more than just your insurance provider. Hunting seasons are designed around protecting the natural, using the the natural resource, but also protecting it and all that kind of stuff. It's always a, it always a kind of a, a I don't want to say it's a red flag, but there's this, it creates this strange gray area when you're allowed to do something on private land and not on public because the the low hanging fruit there is well what about the what about the the 2000 acre deer lease that has 80% of its border is public ground you're hunting the same deer you know um yeah use this i used yeah. the the analogy of recently we had you know the area 6 WMA Tunica Hills has finally opened up through February the 15th which is the Area 6 regulations, but they, they closed the season on the WMA uh, on January 31st. Well, when you look at that, well, we actually had um, Jonathan Bordelon from 
uh, the deer manager for the state, and, and when we asked that question, the answer was, well, our studies show that there's not enough browse and basically said that we don't need to extend the season on the WMA, but you think that the guys right next door aren't planting food plots and drawing those deer off your WMA and killing them until February 15th anyway? You know, so, yeah. so yeah. the regulation didn't make sense in that regard. <laughs> so that that's my only my only thing is I just I, it it feels to me this is where I get a, a little bit of a burr in my saddle about any of this kind of stuff. Whenever I get the in, whenever I get the the inclination that something's being done from a legislative standpoint, and it feels like the decision making has more to do with the economy than it does wildlife, I'm I, that is a red flag for me, and I can't help but wonder: Are you you know are you in, offering more days of opportunity? to satisfy a possible customer base with the economy that hunters bring, or are you doing it for a, a biological reason? I would love to know the answer. I mean, I know the answer wouldn't be that black and white, but I would love to have that question answered if I could somehow. That would make that would make me at least give me more to go off of and draw my opinion. So, I don't and know. And ideally, you'd like to have both? Mm. Well... It's my opinion, and it's derived from personal experience. So I am, a, I am a hunter that has been blessed enough to go and hunt in lots of different states. And, and because of that, I've hunted under a lot of different regulations. And I've seen the effect on the hunting and the deer population in a lot of different places. And I know that one style of hunting doesn't suit everyone. Like you mentioned, you're not a horn hunter. Mm-hmm. Some people, that's what they want. They, you know, they're hunting for, for trophy um, and things like that. But I, I, I just personally think that our, we're taxed to the hilt as Americans in general. And so yeah. I think that our wildlife departments need to put the large majority, if not all of their decision-making on the side of the wildlife and not the economy. It, that's just my opinion. I mean, they, they're funded through our tax dollars and um, a lot of other things. And I'm not saying that they have to completely forget it, but it, it wouldn't feel right to me if we're allowing more, um, if we're allowing more harvest, more pressure, more everything for the sake of this will bring more economy to the state. I don't think that should be the job. The job is to protect the natural resource, not to exploit it. And that's a very strong way to put it, and I don't really look at it that strongly, but I don't know any other way to put it. So I, I like that. I like that. Uh, yeah. So if, if it brought some dollars by providing a uh, – a velvet season, but say maybe they shorten the season, uh, you know, a little on the back end, or they cut a buck out or something for that, you know, and not just promoting the dollars, but they uh, did something to promote the wildlife yeah. in the same. That that would probably be. I, I get what you're saying there. 
I think that's what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, there, and there's no way to follow that trail of what, what what's happening with it. And and I like I said, what is you know I don't think I I I it's my it's not my understanding that. The, that the the limit has expanded. I mean, it's not like you can kill a deer in velvet now and you still get your regular allotment during the season. I think that deer applies to your yearly right. bag limit. So you're not necessarily killing more deer, and that is a positive in my mind because I think Mississippi, uh, yeah. I'm not one of those that's, that's standing on the mountaintop preaching and, and prodding. While I do think that, that, that they could – make some adjustments to 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 uh to the season structure i don't think they have to but i don't think they need to expand it either and there is something to be said for the fact that whether you kill the deer on september the 16th or you wait and you shoot him on october the first when he's lost his velvet you're still killing him it's still a a a take from the the population in that regard so maybe that's not the effect i think the net overall effect of it is however how many and all three of us are are obviously bow hunters so we all know this yeah. this story how many people are able to scout and get on deer during the summer late summer into september and come october the 1st those that velvet comes off those patterns start to change and that deer that you just knew you had figured out on september the 16th you don't have him figured out anymore on october the 1st so how many deer are going to die right you know that that uh nature natural the way that they react to the seasons and stuff have made them um a more elusive prey you know that that would be i'm interested to see as we get down the road what those numbers look like you know are, are we looking at yeah. are we looking at drastic or any notable increase in buck harvest in the state but that's just something that's relevant like I said, because I know that a lot of people that uh, are active in the Louisiana bowhunter community hunt in, in Mississippi, and um, it's something that's coming. I mean, as this podcast released, it'll be it'll be the day before quote-unquote opening day as far as that hunt goes. And so uh, just something interesting that I, that I wanted to kind of get everybody's opinion about. Hey, it's Brian Chamberlain with Movement Mortgage. We're happy to be back for a second year supporting Louisiana Bowhunter. Just want to let you know that we're here for all of your mortgage needs, whether it's a purchase, a refinance, a renovation loan, or to take equity out of your home. We're also an equal opportunity lender, so whether you shoot a crossbow, a compound bow, a fixed blade, or an expandable, we're here for all of your mortgage needs. You can reach us at 504-228-3780 or at chamberlainteam at movement.com. Movement Mortgage, NMLS number 39179, Brian Chamberlain, NMLS number 114586, licensed in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Florida. I want to, do, I want to, I want to talk about a couple other things, and then we're going to get into, uh, Benny, get into to kind of your story and more about Buzzard Roost, uh, the products that you're, you're producing, and, and just kind of ask you some more questions, more detailed questions about that. But I want to... Um, we do get a lot of feedback and we've been asking for a lot of feedback because we want to, uh, we want to have that interaction with people that follow Louisiana bow hunter and, and be able to make this, uh, this podcast and everything that we do, you know, relevant for everybody. So we've been asking people to kind of 
give us feedback. What do you want to hear? What do you want to? Um, what kind of topics do you want here? Do you have any questions you'd like for us to try to answer? Or at least I don't know that we can always answer them, but we can just give opinions with uh, with who's on the podcast in a given week. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a couple of questions that we've gotten recently and 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 talk about them. And I think this might be one uh, that it, that would be really good for you, Benny, because I know you're a you said you're a public land guy, and obviously you're a, a mobile hunter guy uh, with with the yep. saddles and all that. So the question is, how do you scout land in Louisiana when we don't obviously have the pinch points and funnels like in the Midwest? And 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 I would like to just add to that. And I, Benny, I'm going to get you to kind of opine on that first, but I'd like to add to that. I think that the answer, part of the answer is that we, it's not that we don't have them. They just look differently and they're not as identifiable. So maybe part of this answer has to do with how do you figure that out where it's not quite as obvious, but, but maybe I'm wrong. What's your, what's your thoughts about that question? Yeah. So, uh, I I think you're right. They're just not as obvious. Um, if you were up hunting in the Northern States, you know, uh, the terrain and the hills and everything create your pinch points in your funnel. But, uh, like you mentioned, uh, we're in bottom land and everything down here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I'm not a guy that goes hit boots on the ground, uh, before, uh, hunting season. And, but what I do is I'll do a lot of map scouting, and I I look for changes in the trees uh, on the map scouting, and uh, I look for transition areas and, and things like that. You know, uh, streams and and creeks and and uh, low points. I mean, we do have spots that do show a topography drop and low point, <laughs> and I I like to identify those. And then I'm a, I'm an in-season scouter. You know, I'll identify five, six, maybe ten of those spots. And then, you know, when I get the time off of work and I can go out there and look, you know, I'll generally take my morning hunt. If, if I, if my first hunt's a morning hunt, I'll go to a tried and true spot and then, from there, I'll hunt an hour or two, real short sit if I don't kill anything. I, I get out and I move on, and I'll go, and I'll start in-season scouting. I'll look for, you know, hot feed trees and, and things like that where the deer are right now. And then I'll develop a game plan after that. Uh, but th- that's generally what I do. I look for the, the topography changes in the trees. And, and transitions there. Colin, you got any you got any input on this topic? <laughs> yeah. So, a, a lot of I agree with a lot of what Benny said. I think the way I think of it is more of like I kind of relate our hard transition lines to like a Midwest pinch point. So, like if it's hardwoods transitioning to, you know a pine thicket or a willow thicket or whatever it may be, a, a swamp. Um, I kind of, that's kind of what I like try to key, key in on. Um, and like he said, I, I like to hunt a lot in the, or hunt in the morning and then get down 
and then I like to kind of walk around a little bit and see. And one one thing I try to do is I try to utilize my cameras, my trail cameras, to try to help me put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I'm I'm one that I, I kind of <laughs> like to put a lot out um, and let them soak all season, and and I may not check them all regularly, but at the end of the season, I like to try to see where deer are coming from, where I think, you know, they should be coming from or bedding, things like that. Um, that's, I kind of <clears> use the, the trail camera in that way to help me try to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, but really just the transition lines, you know, the, the property that I've hunted or that I hunt, I, I've kind of, over the years identified those, you know, hot spots, those good areas. Um, I just, I don't think it's something that you're necessarily going to just pick out from the map from an aerial view. I think you're going to have to get out there and put some time in and either see the deer, you know, use an area or not see them. And then you can kind of check that off the list the same way. So yeah. that's that's kind of yeah. my take on it. I I tell I'll tell a a, a a very brief story that kind of culminates in a very obvious statement. But as a young man, really learning to hunt, old enough to to hunt by myself a little bit, but but in a hunting club with older gentlemen that had a lot more experience than me, that I would always try to soak up little bits and pieces of things that they would tell me and and try to learn from them. Well, I was. I don't remember what the situation was exactly, but I was walking through the woods or, or down a road in the woods with, with one of these guys, and um, we came across an area, and there were a ton of deer tracks, and they were very obvious. And I immediately, uh, you know, man, look at all these tracks. Man, there's deer tracks everywhere. This, You know, this is the place to be. And the man said, you know what a deer track is? I went, well, obviously I know what a deer track is. He said, a deer track is where a deer used to be. So mm-hmm. if you want to use deer tracks as your uh, your your scouting tool, your way to, um, this is not exactly how he put it, but you know, if you want to use tracks, they're just one piece of the puzzle. You've got to figure out where that deer came from, where he was going, why he left this track here, because this track just signifies that he used to be here. You don't know when he was here, why he was here, if he'll ever pass back through here. So maybe this is the spot to be. Maybe you get in a tree right over there and deer pass by this same trail and you get what you're looking for, or maybe they don't. So I think that, um, you know, I don't think that there is, to this question, I don't think that there's one answer of how do you scout land in Louisiana. Um you know the the person that sent this question did notate there's ob- there's not the obvious pinch points and funnels and that's that's true but i think that one thing that is very important to people hunting in louisiana or in the south in general is you in the same way that while it might be easier you learn when you hunt in the midwest you learn and you figure out what is a pinch point what's a funnel and and it's easier to do but their terrain is more um it's more 
it's it, it, it's more uniform. It kind of stays the same. You go from crop field to hedgerow to crop field to creek bottom to crop field, and it's kind of the same. So you can go along those and see similar terrain to offer you a similar idea of how they're using each one probably in much the same way. The first thing to do in the south is you have to understand that I might be hunting in a piece of property that's big hardwoods and, you know, uh, very little diversity in that way, maybe some thicker areas, but generally big hardwoods with hills and hollows and ridge tops and all that. And I might get in my truck and drive 15 minutes down the road to go hunting with Colin, and I might be hunting on a 300-acre pine thicket that's completely flat and nothing but plantation pines. And then I might get in my truck and drive 15 minutes down the road to go hunt with Mr. Benny, and he's hunting in a swamp, you know, that borders some of the... And so we have vastly different terrain, and there is not one way that you scout all of them the same to figure them out. The deer are going to act differently in one of those versus the other and my my point in bringing up the track thing is you know you're hunting an area because you know most of the time i would i would say if not a hundred percent 99 percent of the time you're hunting an area because you know there are deer there you might not know how many or exactly you know what deer are there but I, i hope that most of you aren't spending too much time hunting in a place where you don't even know if the deer even lives there. So you know that there's deer there. So when you walk in and you find a trail with tracks on it, all that's doing is confirming what you knew before you ever showed up. Old Monterey Outfitters. Come experience Midwest hunting at its finest. Whether it's a trophy whitetail, a pile of dry field ducks, geese, sandhill cranes, or a Rio Grande gobbler you're after, we're here to make it happen. Providing excellent lodging and meal experience for all of our clients, We run only one group of hunters at a time to make sure that group has the best hunting option and best experience to get the most out of their trip. We provide a family-friendly atmosphere with experienced, knowledgeable guides that put in the work day in and day out. Come find out what we're all about here in southern Kansas and northern Oklahoma. To get more information, visit oldmontereyoutfitters.com or contact Brett Harris at 903-720-3865. That's 903-720-3865. Killing a day at Old Monterey. You know, the best yeah. way to scout is to figure out how, you know, what is what is specific about the this kind of terrain because your buddy may be telling you to do this and do that, and where he's hunting is completely different because of our state's diversity. Yeah, so, you know, down in, in the south, we – a lot of our it's it's mostly woods you know whereas in the midwest you got pasture ag and different things like that so you know you have to when you scout you have to find there's going to be a large chunk of the woods that they're just not using and you just have to find that there'll be something a little bit different whether it's thicker or it's got more food or whatever and you just find that that section of the woods however large it may be. And then, you know, I try to hone in on that section of the woods. Uh, That's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. Well, so this is a good, this is a good time for us to kind of segue into, I guess what we would call our primary topic for the episode. We want to find out more about buzzard roost, 
and uh, the company that you've created, Mr. Benny. So, you know, it, it's a good segue because I think I, I think what I heard you say in, in your answer at first to this was that you do a lot of observation scouting. And I don't, you know, I don't know that there's been too many things in our industry that have complemented observation style of scouting during the season much better than being super mobile. And the saddle is about the most mobile way that you can hunt these days, uh, at least most effectively, um, it could be argued. So let's just start out by having you kind of tell us the story of, of, of where you came from and, and how you got to where you are today with Buzzard Roost. Okay. So, yeah, um, I want to point out that that is, like you're talking about the observation style scouting, that that's what drew me to uh, saddle hunting in general. And it was it was more of a mental game than a physical game because I was still walking, you know, uh, three miles to some of my spots on public land, and uh, so I was doing it with a climber on my back, and I was able to do it and I'm still physically able to do it but it, it just something about it didn't feel practical it didn't feel uh comfortable to have this big stand on your back walking through the woods clanging against branches and things like that so my next move was I bought a muddy blood sport uh lock-on stand and I bought it because it fit inside my body frame and, you know, it, it stopped some of that clanking. It was more comfortable to carry. And uh, and while I was, you know, into that mobile hunting style there, I stumbled across saddles, and I was just like, well, cool. Let, let me uh, – I, I want to try that. And so I got to looking for a saddle, and at the time there was only one saddle on the market, and that was an Arrow Hunter Kestrel. And uh, I got to looking at the price and everything of it. And, you know, it's, I'm no different than anybody else today. You know, you look at a, price, a $400 price tag, and it's like, man, I don't even know if that's going to be comfortable. I don't know if that's what I want to do. Uh, you know, stands have been around for years. So, you know, a guy will look at a stand and say, yep, it's worth 400 bucks," and just spend it, and it'll show up at his doorstep. Well, when you're talking about saddles, you know, that that's not what everybody wants to do. It's not what I wanted to do. So I went the cheap route, and uh, there's a thing called a sit drag, and it's made for sitting at ground level, and it's about a six to eight inch piece of webbing that, that just creates like a, a swing seat, and you, you attach it to the tree much like a saddle if you've done any uh, research on saddles, but at ground level. And um, so I looked into it, and I got my mom's sewing machine out, and I ended up splitting that sit drag in half long ways, and I sewed it back to itself, and I knitted some paracord in the middle, which created a, a seat, like a much like a, a, a old man tree stand or a Hasmore uh, style seat, and that's what I started saddle hunting out of about uh, seven eight years ago. I started saddle hunting, and um, 
you know, that that's where I got my roots in it. And I did a lot of uh, mobile hunting and scouting, you know, with that sit drag, and it was able to to get me places that, uh, you know, I probably would have stopped a lot earlier. But it gave me the confidence to continue walking, and, you know, maybe three miles turned into five miles in total and hunting the hot sign versus, you know, just stopping at a spot and saying, oh, well, this looks good enough. I'll just stop here. Yeah. What Was there a moment or maybe not a specific moment, but a specific time frame in, in all of your research and development where you, like, is there a story to be told where you were like, yeah, I've got it. This is, this is what I've been trying to put together. Uh, I, I didn't really try to, uh, put together <coughs> a saddle to bring the market. I, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, just one one day say, you know, I'm going to make a saddle and it's going to go on the market and guys are going to love it and I'm not going to stop until I do. You know, I, I didn't do that. So saddle hunting was kind of growing. I did it, I think, for two, three years and I had buddies that was like, man, there ain't no way I'm doing that. And uh, it kind of picked up and people were gaining interest, but still again there, they didn't want to go spend, you know, that kind of money and not know if they like it. So they was able to come to me, and they asked, and they said, hey, will you make me one? And so I did some research, got some pricing on, on materials and everything. And, you know, it's, it's I was able to get materials, you know, for right around 100 bucks or a little more, a little less, depending on what the guys wanted. And I'm just talking about my close friends here. I'm not talking about just acquaintances. And, uh, you know, that that's what got me started making them for guys. And I made a saddle for a buddy. And while I was making it, I had uh, an aha moment, I guess you would say, that I was like, man, I wonder if I tried making this loop around a real short loop, unlike the other saddles that are uh, – a longer loop and you know adjusting this will cause this to move without even trying i don't want this to move i want it to stay there but i want this down here at the bottom to move off of my hip and so while i was making it for him i come up with that design and it was probably about 11 to midnight that i was doing this because i worked shift work in the plant so i was mess around at midnight before my uh, night shift the next night and I went out on the porch and when I sat in it it was like oh man this is not this is real nice and so I brought it to him well first I, I put out my patent I, I put in a uh, I applied for a, a patent pending status and uh you know, I got that going. You know, there's a lot of patent rules around that that you can't just show everybody. You have to have applied first. So um, I did that, and then I brought it to him. I said, hey, I, I want you to try this and tell me what you think. And he did. And 
at that time, you know, there was other saddles on the market. There was Latitude and Cruiser and Tethered and Trophy Line. And uh, he said, Benny, I got to tell you that, you know, uh, I have two other saddles. And he said, this one right here ranks right up there with them. And he said, I got two others that are on the market, two different companies. And he said, this, this saddle ranks right up there with them. You have to try and do something with this. And I was like, man, don't lie to me. But uh, he said, I'm not lying. You really got to try. And so I made a few more. And just for the same group of guys that were, you know, getting me to make other ones for them. And, and they all said the same thing. You know, this is really worth trying to go after. And so I did my LLC, and uh, I had guys that started to get out of my friend group. And that's that the moment where I said, okay, I got to go have this thing tested. I got to do everything 100%. And uh, I did, and then I brought it to market, and it just started picking up after that. And guys were just uh, saying how comfortable it was and, they really like the name. That kind of draws them buzzers loose. That you know that that name's kind of catchy. And uh, I, other than that, Bubba, I don't, I don't know what other story to tell you. No, but that, that's how it came about. No, that that it just a uh, it just evolved. It was never I never meant to come to market with anything. It just I I got lucky, I guess, or blessed that that it happened to me. Well, it, it's a cool success story, and it, 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 to me, it's, it's authentic, you know. Um, it, it's authentic in its origins, uh, not to say that someone who sets out to create something to bring to market is inauthentic. It, it's not so much that, it's, but, but something that has a very specific function when it's born from a passion project and not from a profit project. Uh, something about it feels yeah. more organic. That's really cool. But I did. I wanted to ask. This is not necessarily the time of the podcast that I thought I'd be asking this question. But one of the things I wanted to ask is is about the name. Where it is a it is a catchy name, and you got a cool logo. And and um, I'm in I'm in digital marketing. That's what I do for a living. So I always you know uh, branding is is always catches my eye. So I'm, I'm curious how you came up with the name because it is a good one. Well, we have a uh, a little. I'm sorry. We have an area right here around Santa where I'm from. It's called Duck Roost. And so it was like, well, I can't use Duck Roost because there's another guy that has a, a restaurant named Duck Roost. And, um, you know, I, I, I told you I'm, I'm not a horn hunter. Um, I, I'll, I'll shoot small bucks and things. I just don't have the time to really get into specific buck hunting. So, I consider myself picking up the scraps sometimes. And the other guys that I hunt with, the, the, they're very similar to me. And we hunt public land. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think that um, it comes from being more of a scrappy style hunter. And, you know, that's what buzzards do. They pick up the scraps. And so a buzzard person to a tree, you know, he's on the roost. And, I just put it together. It's a buzzard roost. We're here to kill animals and stand over a carcass at the end of the day. That's really and, cool. 
you know, that's what a buzzard does. They don't necessarily kill them, but they stand over the carcass at the end of the day. So. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, it's it's cool to me that that you have such an interesting and and uh, detailed backstory behind it because uh, it is a really cool name. That's a cool story. Yeah. So it wasn't as easy to come up with as you think. Oh, I, I've been involved <laughs> in branding for too long. I know. <laughs> I know exactly. The sometimes, hardest part of it. Sometimes that is. What, what? I don't care. It's easier than the name. Yeah. What What were you going to ask, Colin? Uh, one of my questions was, so why, why the two panel, uh, saddle? Is it, is it comfort? Have you tinkered with a single panel or, or what's the story behind that? Yeah. So that is where I did, I'm not business uh, minded guy at all. But one thing I do know about saddles, and I, I've watched them since the beginning, is that uh, the number one question a guy will ask is, is it comfortable? So, if I was going to do this, if I was going to shoot a shot, putting a saddle on the market, I knew it had to be a two-panel because a two-panel in general, from what I've I've looked into is the more comfortable saddle. And uh, my original saddle is a one panel, and I tend to gravitate towards a one panel, just being honest. Uh, Business-wise, it just made more sense to go with a, a two panel because it is more comfortable. And the original design of my saddle that I have on the market was just the bottom panel. When I tell you I went and I sat on the on the porch and sat in, in the saddle and I was like, man, this is this is comfortable. It was a it was just the bottom. It wasn't my top panel. And, you know, that's one thing that sets me apart from everybody else on the market is I can take each of my panels and I can hold them in a in a different hand. I can hold the bottom of my left hand. I can hold the top of my right hand and they're not connected, you know, until I connect them and complete the saddle. And that's different than everybody else. I can make adjustments on my bottom panel without adjusting my top panel and vice versa. I can adjust the top panel without adjusting the bottom. And, you know, that is the key to my comfort in my saddle. And, you know, to get back on track with your question, you know, comfort's the number one question, and a two-panel answers that question easier than a one-panel does. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's – so I'll admit I am I'm very new to saddle hunting. I got a saddle um, in January of last year, and, I, and I, I've, I've said this on the podcast a couple of times, so I'm not going to reiterate that whole story, but I, mean, I hunted out of it a handful of times. Um, I'm certainly not, um, you know, all the way comfortable with just uh, everything that I need to be. I need to, to put in a lot more practice for this coming season and uh, continue to work on that. But I, I see um, – I, I, I've hunted in them and I've worn them enough now that I – I can see the, um, you know, the stuff that you're talking about, and you kind of answered one of my uh, one of my upcoming questions uh, with that answer. In that, I was going to ask you what set what sets your saddle apart from other ones on the market, but uh, 
yeah, you, you kind of answered that with oh, yes. how you explained the, the two-piece. So that that's cool. Um, I want to know, kind of kind of going more into the, the, the personal side of it, you know, for you, how long did it take you to actually kill when you when you did this when you first started putting together uh, a, a saddle for yourself and and exploring that hunting style and all how long did it take you to be successful and actually kill a deer out of out of your one of your prototypes we'll call it that for lack of a better word. Um. So out of my original saddle, uh, I, I think I killed one on my first hunt and. When I say hunt, uh, it, I take like three, four days, and and I'll go off and I'll go hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I I kill one on that on that first set. That maybe not. I don't think it was the very first fit in it, but it was the first set that that I went. Yeah, <coughs> that's a pretty good proof of concept, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I, I don't think I don't think it had anything to do with uh with you know uh, the saddle because I don't believe a saddle is gonna make you. All right, let me be careful how I say this. I don't think a saddle is gonna make you kill more deer. I think I think that comes with woodsmanship, and I think you're gonna be in deer whether or not you're in a saddle or packing a stand. I think that a saddle will lighten your load. And like I said before, it'll give you the confidence to maybe walk five miles and find the hot sign versus stopping at three or, uh, you know, just stopping somewhere because you're tired. It's hot. You know, all those factors that play in mentally that says, I'm just going to stop right here. You know, I think I think it eliminated a lot of those for me. So uh, I'm not going to say that uh, a saddle will make you kill more deer because just buying a saddle is not going to guarantee you a big buck or, or anything like that. But I think it's a great tool in your arsenal, no matter if you're a public land hunter, private land hunter, or, or what. Because, you know, I think it's the most versatile tool out there. But if you've been hunting out of lock-ons forever and you're killing deer, I'm going to tell you, you don't need to swap. You don't need to get one. But yeah. if you did and you find yourself gravitating towards a saddle more, then that's what you should be in. It fits your style. Yeah. yeah. I. Uh, so I <clears throat> obviously I, I film a lot of hunts, um, self-film some and film other people. And I made the switch to a saddle probably four or five years ago. And I, I mean, I love them. I, I think, you know, one of the biggest things for me is that, well, first off filming, I, I don't have to have like the perfect shot, you know, with, with a bow, I, I just have to get a camera up there. But the main thing is that, you know, if I'm already hauling, a 30 pound, you know, bag full of camera equipment, batteries, this, that, and the third. And I just throwing the saddle on is too easy. And versus throwing, adding another, you know, 12 or 13 or 15 pound stand on the back of my backpack. That's already heavy. So that's, that's really the way that I utilize it the most, you know, 
coming being a cameraman. Yeah, I, I, I can attest to that. that you that a, a guy that films his hunt or a cameraman, I will say he needs a saddle yep. because I, I just think the weight reduction there is hands down the most beneficial to a cameraman. Well, I I can 100%. I can tell you from firsthand experience for for years I spent I don't know how much time hauling two stands into the woods or being limited in where we were hunting and filming because I had to have a double set that we could get two people in the tree and all that. And for the last two years, Colin has been filming hunts with me out of his saddle, and it has completely, um, I don't want to say it's changed anything, but it's its completely, uh, I, I say changed anything in the way we hunt, but it has definitely opened up opportunities to uh, get into places and do things in what at least feels like a much more efficient manner. And when you're filming, usually you're you're on a time crunch as well. You're somewhere filming for so many days. And, you know, like you said, you need to be able to go as far as you need to be able to go to be in the right spot and not just any spot. And um, you definitely... Uh, definitely offers that and plus the the, just the flexibility in a tree i got one more question for you benny because maybe this is uh self-serving for me a little bit but uh after that we got a couple questions that we're gonna cover that were sent in to us when we uh we posted about a, a saddle hunting conversation on the podcast and had some people uh ask some questions that we'll We'll run through before we wrap up. But one last question that, that I want to know, because this is what I'm struggling with as a new saddle hunter. Um, how long did it take you, or maybe not how long did it take you, but what what different methods did you do personally in your journey to, to get proficient with the shooting aspect of it? Because that's the part that concerns me the most. In, and I know practice is, is the ultimate answer, but... Um, you know, just the, the mobility and the flexibility and the, you know, the, the power that you have in, in, in being as mobile as you can be with a saddle is, in my mind, unquestioned. The questions that I do still have are, um, you know, the, 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 the shooting out of the saddle and, and how challenging and different that can be. So how, how did you attack that? Uh, to be honest, I just uh, I went head first with it. I practice um, just climbing and sitting in the saddle, but I didn't shoot out of the saddle until I went hunting. And um, I, and I, I don't know why I did that. It was probably more of a time crunch thing than um, than just a, a principle of I need I need to I need to just go shoot out a shoot a deer out of it first time I ever shoot out of a saddle. But for me, I, I was never nervous about sitting in the saddle. That that just didn't bother me at all. Um and I know it does bother some people and the advice I have for those guys is, you know, you need to do something to take your mind off of being in the saddle during your practice to where you you're not in the saddle anymore. You're just there as a part of a tree, and that sounds like really weird saying it, but uh, just 
don't worry about being in the saddle and just take the shot. You have to be, uh, I tell guys, get a buddy out there and just talk with them. Just hold a conversation while you're moving around the tree shooting and y'all are practicing. Let the buddy go retrieve arrows. You know, uh, somebody that you can really hold a conversation with. You know, not somebody who's just going to stand there and, and be quiet in your backswing at, at, you know, while you're playing golf. You, you need to talk the whole time and take your mind off of the saddle and just shoot. Yeah. Um, because it, it shouldn't be a, a, a thought, you know, moving around the tree in the saddle. It, it shouldn't be a thought. You should just be shooting like you're standing on the ground. And I find it easy easier to shoot in a saddle than I do – the in a chair uh, scenario, like a ground blind, I find it much easier to shoot a saddle than that. It's good advice. Not something I have not. Uh, that's a that's a piece of advice that makes a lot of sense. That I don't I don't know that I've heard in this kind of conversation before. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, that you're and you're probably you're probably right in my case in that it's a mental game of maneuvering around the whole situation and i'm thinking about that and less about just you know because i know if i'm standing on the ground i can contort my body and shoot in different angles why couldn't i do it standing on my platform you know uh and and so that's that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh a way to look at it so i like that so we're um i mentioned before uh that we're gonna cover a couple questions so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of introduce these get you to uh kind of give your thoughts about how you might would answer them benny and then um colin and i we might have an opinion we generally do about some things but uh, (laughs) what uh so the first one is is doesn't apply to me applies a little bit more to colin but um i i have heard it and read it in in different places what are your opinions or thoughts about saddle hunting for bigger guys Uh, so bigger guys, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know that they're limited by anything by being in the saddle other than, uh, you know, the 300 pound rating that the saddle has, you know, if they're, if they're above 300, I just can't as a manufacturer suggest that they get one that, you know, rated at 300 and I don't know of one. There may be one. Uh, a saddle out there that is rated over 300 uh there might be one like i said but i don't know of it and and if it's out there i i say get in it try it yeah um but i, I think uh you know just industry standard is 300 pounds well that's but kind of bigger the case. guys um yeah go ahead i was gonna say that's kind of the case with lock-ons too <laughs> i mean lock-on stands um really Not most any- of those 300 yeah, around that, and so are climbers. I mean, pretty much any mode. I, I, I guess my, my, my thought about it, uh, Benny, is I don't think bigger guys should feel more limited in saddles than they do in any mobile hunting. I mean, all any small mobile lock-on or climbing stand, they all have the same kind of safety ratings. And, uh, you know, if you know, as long as you're buying a saddle that fits you the correct way and you're within the the recommended specifications on the on the weight rating and all um i guess at that point it just comes up to you know 
your own physical capability. So uh, the question kind of the question kind of reads: What's the best saddle option for bigger guys? And I think the best saddle option is whatever fits you best, as long as you fit within the safety regulations. That's a fair way to put it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'll say this: if, if the guys listening, that latitude makes an XL version. And, uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of feedback that that Latitude XL 2-panel is very cool. Mm. Something to check um, out. And then also, yeah. as long as you don't exceed the, the 300 pounds, you know, you're welcome to call me and, and I can build you a saddle, uh, you know, for a bigger guy. Now, my standard large saddle, it stops at about uh, a 44 you know, but that's just because I, I don't really have a, a market bigger than that. But I can make you a one-off saddle that uh, will go, you know, if, if you're a short 300-pound guy and you've got a little bit bigger waist, you know, uh, email me. I'll make you a saddle. Yeah, I, I kind of think that this, if you're a bigger guy, the saddle may be a better option because if you get one that, that fits you right, I would imagine it's going to be more comfortable than some of them them small lightweight mobile stands they have now where the seat's like 10 inches wide. That's not going to be comfortable for much more than maybe two hours. The platforms are really small, and you're just kind of limited. But as long as you meet the, the safety standard and it fits you, just because you're bigger doesn't mean it's going to be any less comfortable, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. It, it's not. Uh, as long as it fits you correctly, like you said, uh, one thing that, you know, I'll have to pay attention to if, if a guy was to call me is I'd have to get him a longer bridge. Uh, and because the longer your bridge is, the, the more room you, you have, uh, for the geometry to work and not give you hip pinch. And I, I make a really good saddle that doesn't, uh, give you hip pinch, but, even I can't uh, beat physics, you know. Right. Uh, if you're a bigger guy and yeah. I put a short bridge on your saddle, it's going to pinch you. It's going to pinch yeah. you. So uh, angles are something to pay attention to for bigger guys. You know, if they put it too high, it tends to pull up on them, and that creates some discomfort, and it also gives that pinch. So I would say a bigger guy would probably have to run his tether a little bit shorter, I mean lower, and then a longer bridge. Um. So let's uh, let, let's talk about this next question. And this is this this kind of plays into my uh, personal. When I ask you the question about shooting and getting uh, you know comfortable with that, getting into saddle hunting, this one it, it, this kind of plays into that. The, the question reads, um, do you have any tips for shot setups? I feel like it takes a lot more movement to change shot directions than it would in a lock-on. And I can say that personally, I found myself in the limited amount of time that I hunted out of a saddle last season, I found myself, I did feel more limited in that regard not because I didn't think it was possible, but because I knew that I had not practiced it and I wasn't comfortable trying to do it in a hunting scenario. So I found myself limiting how I set up so that really I was only able to shoot 
in limited spots from my setup, which would have been on my strong side where I knew I felt comfortable getting drawn back and anchored correctly and all that. So uh, I guess the question, the, the, the best way to, to, to answer the question would be any tips for learning how to um, set up those shots outside of your obvious strong side shot? Yeah. So what you need to do is, like I talked about before, is you need to have somebody out there talking with you and y'all just practice shooting and have have that guy, have your wife or something moving the target around. And instead of – I don't want you to – Focus on what you're doing. I just want you to do it and move your feet around. And uh, you should have already taken inventory of what's around your feet ahead of time. If there's a limb, a branch, or a leaf, or something that could make noise, or if the bark is rough, take inventory of that when you're in your hunting situation. But uh, Learn to move around that tree without even thinking about it or having to put specific focus on, you know, where you're going to land your feet. You need to know where your feet are going without having to look down. And that will create a, a fluid motion so that you can move silently and uh, less, um, I don't know, I think about it like, watching Jurassic Park, they tell you the T-Rex is attracted to motion. Yeah, so you want it to be fluid and, and calm in your movement so that you don't attract attention to yourself. But I think if you let the deer get close enough in a hunting situation that you're going to be above their peripherals and you can move all you want. That's my goal is to let them get so close underneath me that I don't have to worry about uh, them seeing me from far out. I don't take my bow off the hook until they're in killing distance. Unless they're running in. Obviously, you have to, you know, be quicker. But when they're running in, they're not exactly looking up at the tree at you anyway. Yeah. So you just reach and grab your bow and make the movement and shoot. But if they're just yeah. walking into a feed tree, I, I say let them get in underneath you before you even grab your bow. Yeah, another tip too is so if you think about it like a clock and if you set your climbing sticks coming up the tree to like your nine or ten o'clock and if you put them even with your platform you can work your foot around and actually come off your platform and onto the top of your climbing stick and work around that tree to make like that and you can actually work far enough around where you can make like that two or three o'clock, which would typically be your weak side. You can make that two or three o'clock shot very easily just by having your stick uh, level with the top of the top of your stick level with your platform. Uh, That's another thing to keep in mind too. You know, yeah, that's excellent. The top of your stick's not great for standing on, but it will be a great uh, maneuvering tool to, to take shots like what you talk about yeah good tip i think it it you know it sounds to me i don't have the experience that the other two of you have in doing this but and i've always been a lock-on hunter you know since i was old enough to to to, to do that and and um because i always wanted to be a little more mobile either climbing i kind of climbing stand a lot too when i was younger and um 
you know, at some point in everybody's life or, or, or journey as a hunter, you know, the first time you put 20 or 25 foot of sticks uh, or, how, or however high you want to go, and you stand on a small, lightweight, mobile lock-on platform, you you have to do a lot of the same things that you're talking about um, when it when it pertains to just being comfortable and being able to turn either way and do it fluidly without having to put your hand down and brace yourself and look down at your feet. I mean that you know I guess some people are blessed. I'm not. I'm not. I don't have a fear of heights. I, but I don't think you have to have a fear of heights to just be aware. You know, I mean, a fear is a natural emotion that keeps us safe. And when you're standing on a small platform not much bigger than your boots and you're trying to you know uh make a a major turn that comes with experience being able to do that fluidly while keeping your eye on the animal to make sure that you're moving at the right times and getting everything in position without having to stop and grab the tree and look down at your feet and all the things you talked about practicing um to make sure that you can move around in your saddle setup almost you know just fluidly without without even looking or even thinking about it you you, all of us have at some point have evolved that ability standing on a lock-on platform as well and so this doesn't really to me it 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 doesn't seem like it would be all that much different you just got to do it i mean to your point i guess i'm I'm just reiterating what you said you got to do it to to in order to to get where you can you know the the question is any tips for shot setup well you know, first of all, I think that, you know, the way you set up on the tree has a lot to do with the area you're hunting and where you expect the deer to come and go from and all that. But all the shot setup stuff has got to be done before. You know, if you want to be able to set yourself up to, to take advantage of whatever that deer might do when he gets in bow range, you've got to be able to, to, to move around as comfortably and, and effortlessly while maintaining your ability to to keep your eye on the animal and move at the right time and and all that kind of stuff that I don't think that's really that much different than how you learn to hunt with whatever you're hunting with right now. It's just an experience thing. So, yeah. So, uh, when it comes to picking your shot placement, when I'm setting up on the deer, obviously in a saddle, like that's one of the main, uh, benefits to a saddle is, there should not be a spot where you can't shoot the deer. And and that holds true, I'd say, 99% of the time. You want to be able to, to deal with the unexpected. But for me, when I set up, I expect the deer to come out at, say, my, uh, we'll call it 7, 8 o'clock position. So when I'm sitting in the tree, I'm looking for them to come at my 7, 8 o'clock and walk into my 9 o'clock, and from my 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock is a quarter and away shot. So when I say that that deer is, you know, I'm not in their peripherals anymore when they're in the kill zone, you know, I'm literally, I'm right-handed, so I'm grabbing my bow with my left hand, and I almost don't even have to move at all on my platform to take that kill shot because I let them come in from my back. And now if they, if they take and they go more towards my six, then I'll grab the boat and I'll take a six o'clock drop shot. Mm -hmm. But that, that is my preparation for a deer. I, 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 another thing, this parallels, this parallels, and it's going to segue into our last question really well. 
I, I have we've had a lot of conversations I've had with friends and 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 whatnot hunting, but we've had them on this podcast too, just talking about setting up and hunting to where you're getting set up the right way. And I think one of the biggest mistakes as a bow hunter that people make, and I have watched it unfold in front of me way more times uh, than I care to, to, to recall, is people go out and they hang their stand, they set up their lock on their ladder stand in an area, whether it's a you know, edge of a food plot or, a, or, or some, wherever, for whatever reason. And in doing so, they get the stand set up, and then they back up and they spend 45 minutes with a pole saw making sure that any deer that gets within bow range of that stand, they can kill it. They're like, well, what if the deer comes over there? What if the deer comes over here? What, you know, and what they end up doing, in my opinion, is they, they hurt themselves because they've taken away, in too many cases, they've taken away a lot of what made that the right tree to put the stand on to begin with. You know, uh, by by um, cutting down a lot of your cover and all that, and 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 what I'm getting all the way around to with that is, as a bow hunter, we're not rifle hunters, and you've got to you got to learn to sh- to set your 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 spot up, whatever you're hunting in. However, whether it's an existing spot you set up or a mobile spot, you got to get in there with a really strong idea of how you're going to kill a deer out of this spot, and accept the fact that if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. You may not get the shot, but if you try to pick, if you if you're if you're standing there and you're looking at a tree and you know good and well that that's the right tree. If I get on this tree facing this direction, there's a very high probability that if I've got this figured out right, the deer are going to do this, and that puts me in the right situation. If you change your mind and get in this other tree because well, but what if if I go get in this tree? Yeah, I'm not really exactly in the right spot, um, and. And yeah, I don't have as much cover, but if the deer happens to do this, I'll be I'll still I'll be able to take the 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 first shot, and I'll also be able to take these other shots. I, I don't I think that's overthinking it, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think it's not only overthinking it, but it's 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 getting yourself um, into a place mentally where you make a bad decision because you probably should have relied on your woodsmanship and your instincts as a hunter to know that, hey, um, this is the right spot. I knew it was the right spot when I walked in here. And now I'm backing up and getting in this spot where I, I think I'm covering more ground, but I'm not on the X anymore. Um, and, right. And, I, and I, so that's, that's kind of my talk, take on that. But all right, let's, let's jump into the last question. I saved this one for last because you've already kind of commented on it, but I really liked your answers and, um, you know, the way you, uh, the way you talked about this. So I'm just going to get you, as we're wrapping up here, to just kind of comment a little bit more on this question and, uh, and, and see if there's any more to add to what you've already said. The question is, is a saddle worth it on private land? Fixed, set, fixed sets on private versus uh, saddles on private. Um, you talked about this a little bit in, in your identifying the saddle as a tool and, 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 and all that kind of stuff, but just, just comment on that one last time here, and we'll wrap up after this. Okay. Yeah, I think I think it is worth it for every hunter to have unless, I'll say this, unless you are a strict box, box stand hunter or you are a guy that has one of those properties that, 
you have deer coming on camera and you're consistently killing deer every year that you're putting on your wall and they're just coming in front of your lock on stand. I think if you're doing that consistently, you don't have a reason to, to swap over to a saddle. Now, <laughs> I do think that that guy that's consistently killing bucks from his lock-on stand, he might just kill him a day or two earlier because he's on the other side of the food plot. He's still coming to the food plot every day. But say you got a four-day set to go hunting, and, you know, you see him two evenings in a row on the far side of the food plot, you know, it, it's just my opinion that the third day he's probably going to do the same thing. There's something there drawing him. And I would I would hope that my woodsmanship would tell me and I'd know what it is that's drawing him over there in the first place. But um, if he's over there two days in a row, the third day, I'd have – in a tree where I could kill him. And uh, I think that's where a saddle shines is its ability to be moved easier than a stand can. And I, I 100% believe in the first time that you sit a tree is your best opportunity to kill a deer, whether it be a big buck, be a doe, or just whatever, whatever walks by. I think that's your best opportunity. And I think the one thing about a saddle versus a tree stand is you cannot be told no that you can't climb that tree with a saddle. You can't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can in a lock-on or a climber, especially a climber. A lock-on gives you a little more freedom. Well, a saddle, I think, just takes that completely out of the game. And so that, for me, is why I hunt mostly out of a out of a uh, saddle. Now I'm not gonna say if a if a buddy says, "Hey, I got a lock on right here," and the deer are passing, you know, I'll probably just go sit his lock on because I mean, deer die out of lock ons every year, and they have been for years. So for me to discount that 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 lock on's in the right spot, but. A saddle, you know, and like what I said, if the deer's coming across the food plot and he does it consistently, you need that ability to be able to move on him and kill him. Yeah. I'll wrap up by saying um, that I, I, I think that the majority of guys who might be listening to this who fit into that category of having, you know, private land that they've done their, their work and they've set it up, and they have a lot of really good sets, and they hunt them successfully year after year after year. I think the majority of those guys can still think of a number of, of, of situations where they've thought, man, I'd really, I'd really like to be able to go hunt that area, but I, you know, there's not a tree I can climb, and I don't really want to go get a stand up in there, and... If they had the saddle, they could slip in there and make at least just make an observation sit and see. You know, I think all of exactly. us, I think all of us as hunters are curious by nature, and like yeah. you said, this is a tool. It's not an end all be all. It's a tool in your arsenal of things to not only potentially help make you more successful, but just to help you enjoy what you're doing. I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a pastime. It's a hobby. 
you know, hunting is something that, that we do to enjoy. And if, if being able to throw your saddle gear in the back of your side-by-side side and just venture off into that hollow that you've never had a stand in before and, and make that hunt and see what's up in there um, before you go treaching down through there trying to hang a stand, if, if that in, you know, if that is fun to you, if that in, improves your decision-making on how you're going to set up your private ground, then it's worth it, you know? Uh, and yep. then to your point, then you got it there at the camp. If for some reason you do get on the biggest deer you've ever had on your property and you can't seem to get him in bow range and you need to move 100 yards without blowing him out of the area or something like that, then you've got it. It becomes that tool. And that's, that's what it's become for me over the years of just following the, the, the um, increased interest in saddles and all the conversation about people hunting out of saddles. Um, I, I'll kind of uh, wrap up by saying – I think it's really cool, uh, just as Louisiana bow hunter from from Louisiana bow hunter. I think it's really cool that we have someone in our state uh, making a quality product. We're proud to have you guys uh, advertising here with us this season, and and uh, I, I, you know, we we love the idea that you know, I think we all as as in the South in general, but in this state, we're proud people, and we think that we uh, we're all good hunters and there's a lot of really good hunters here so um having having a company here local that's producing a an innovative and quality product is is really cool and i'm glad we were able to have you on to talk more about it and more about the story and more about the company so we really thank you for taking the time yep lock i appreciate it man yeah that's uh that's very well said and we really do uh, appreciate those kind words yeah, Colin, do you have any anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Just if you're on the fence about it, just go get you one. Try it out. You'll probably end up liking it, but if you don't, nowadays the the resale value is very high, so you won't <laughs> lose very much money. Well, um yeah. I I can attest to that. I mean, I, I, Levi even posted a, a a meme about me. Uh on on the community page not long ago uh, about me saying I was going to stick with my lock-ons and um I have to say that I've I've been more intrigued about it every day since I got one and uh I think it's really cool. So as we wrap up here Benny tell everybody the best way that they can get in touch with you or 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 order a saddle or whatnot. Just kind of give everybody those pertinent pertinent details. Okay, man. Uh, yeah, so you can go on buzzardroofsaddles.com, and that's where you can purchase a saddle from us. Um, you can purchase a saddle. You can purchase uh, the lineman belts, the lineman and tether uh, ropes. Um, we are in the process of making some pouches, and we haven't come up with a design yet that we're ready to release. We want to do something a little different than, you know, what's – what's out there on the market. So we don't want to just do what everybody else is doing. Uh, and one thing I do want to mention is that we offer an American flag patch that will add to your saddle for an extra $10. And Buzzard Roost does not make any money off of this, this patch that you add. What we do with it is every time uh, we sell 20 saddles, or 20 of those patches to add the saddles, we're going to donate the saddle, a saddle, to a service member. And that can be an active military or veteran, law enforcement officer, firefighter, EMT, 
a service member that serves our community, we want to take care of them and say thank you and, and donate a saddle. So if y'all can help us out and add that patch to your saddle when you make the order, uh, we greatly appreciate that so that we can give back to those that, that give so much to us. Um, so that's at buzzardroofsaddles.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, that is uh, a good way to get in touch with us. Uh, we also answer emails, uh, buzzardroofsaddles at yahoo.com, or just go on, on the buzzardroofsaddles.com and, and uh, click on the Contact Us link, and you can get a hold of us. And we generally answer within the day. So, uh, yeah, thank you a lot. That's uh that's all I got about how you can get get in touch with us. Well, we appreciate you uh supporting Louisiana Bow Hunter and advertising with us and appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk with us on this episode. It's been a been a good conversation and we wish you the best of luck this hunting season, not only with your hunting but also with Buzzard Roost. Hope hope to see the company really grow. And uh for, for Colin and I, we are gonna jump on an airplane here in a couple of days. And we are going to fly out to the mountains and do something we've never done before. So hopefully we all return in one piece with a, with a bull elk in tow and uh, a story to tell about that. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We're, we're venturing off into uh, un, 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 uh, uncharted territories for us. But, uh, but we're going to go give it a shot. And uh, hopefully there will be a bunch of stories to tell about that. And uh, in the meantime, we have just released several new products at louisianabowhunter.com new merchandise products some new hat designs and t-shirt designs um really encourage you to go check those out at louisianabowhunter.com and also we're starting to get a lot of merchandise out into uh, stores uh both new stores and existing stores where you've seen our our products in the past so support your local retailers and if you got a store uh, whether it be just a little corner store that a lot of hunters like to stop at to and from the woods or, or a hardware store with an outdoor section or a full-fledged archery shop or, or outdoor shop. If you've got one that uh, you think needs to have Louisiana Bowhunter merchandise in it, give us a shout, give us a heads up, and we'll reach out and see if we can't get that out there. And uh, But if you don't do that, if, you, if you're not a, a retail guy, you can pick up anything we got, and we got some pretty cool stuff coming, and we got more cool stuff coming in October as well, um, some archery gear as well as merchandise. So encourage people to do that and uh, take part in the Louisiana Bowhunter community online. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's something that we promote often on the website. I mean, I'm sorry, often on the podcast, and uh, we really want people to, uh, to jump on there and talk. With the season coming, I know a lot of people have got a lot of cool pictures and videos of things that they're doing to get ready, trail cams, and all kind of stuff like that. that that's what that community page is supposed to be about is uh, for, for the Louisiana bow hunter and all of us that are Louisiana bow hunter to, to really to be a community and have that resource to bounce questions off each other and just enjoy the greatest time of the year because it's right around the corner. And uh, we'll be back, and we will talk to you next week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the louisiana bowhunter podcast if you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com and if you want to help support louisiana bowhunter go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise if you don't have any at your local shop let us know and we'll reach out to them or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day see you next week